Today is August 10, 1987. My name is Sister Prince and I'm interviewing Dr. Evelyn Roberts for the Black History Exhibit for the Missouri Historical Society. This interview will be centered around 1940 to 1960. Although many St. Louisans and Missourians think that I'm a native St. Louisan and Missourian, I'm not. Uh, my parents uh, lived in Oklahoma. My father, who was the, uh, the late attorney James Henry Roberts, and my mother, the late Audia Horde Roberts, uh, were married. And my sister, who is older than I, Mrs. Lolita Roberts Abernathy, uh, my sister and I were born in Oklahoma, mm -hmm. uh, where my father was an a, a, a educational administrator before he graduated from the Chicago University Law School. And when he received his law degree, then I think he, with another associate, decided to relocate in St. Louis. And uh, so that's how our family moved from uh, McAllister, where I was born, and my sister was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, to St. Louis. What in the early uh, 20s, I was not quite two. I was born in 1920. So I think they said I was about 18 months when we relocated here. So actually, I know all about uh, St. Louis in terms of growing up. Uh, my parents were quite religious people. And so we identified, my sister and I identified with the same church with which they were affiliated. And that's the First Baptist Church, which is the first Baptist church of St. Louis that was established way back in the slavery days, and so it's the oldest Baptist uh, mm -hmm. church in this area. Um, uh, we grew up there in the church and the community. My mother was affiliated with the Phyllis Wheatley YWCA, and so many of our extracurricular activities during childhood uh, were related to the Phyllis Wheatley YWCA and the director of the YWCA at that time was Mrs. Maddie Dover Young, who was also a member of our church. And uh, I guess I was a very young child when I recall that our church was a center for prominent black leaders who came to St. Louis to espouse positive causes because we had a very progressive minister. Uh, it was the Reverend O'Clay Maxwell of St. Louis at that time, who later relocated in New York as a leader in the National Baptist uh, denomination. And so I remember hearing, having heard a lecture by A. Philip Randall, and I remember the name more than I remember the lecture because mm -hmm. I was very young then, but that related to the Brotherhood, the organization of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, and of course uh, many members of our church were in that uh, industry, um, the porters and the railroad industry, I guess we would say. And then, of course, there was the spearhead of uh, improving education. And uh, so since we lived in the Enright uh, Sarah area, uh, there were some portables. And I recall that my father uh, wrote schools. Yes, portables sponsored by the Board of Education. But they did not have electric lights. And I recall that my father wrote a, a, a letter to the people in the post dispatch saying that um, there was 
the likelihood that many children would go blind because they stayed in school on dark days without electrical lights. And so I heard my parents discussing all this or other people. And soon thereafter, his uh, letter attracted attention and the uh, engineers were in installing electricity so that we could have classes with lights, you know, rather than just sit in the darkness on dark days in the winter, in the spring, and so forth. So what you saw was that if people did speak up, yes, that, that things could happen. would affect change, mm -hmm. and so forth. Uh, then, as I say, um, our recreational activities, other than in the school and our enrichment, my father always insisted on uh, Liter higher level of literacy because he was a scholar himself. And uh, I recall that my mother, later after he died, he died after I had entered high school, but um, she showed me a letter that the judge had written to him, commending him on his diction, and his rhetoric, and his logic for a case that he had tried in court. Which and, judge was it? Oh, I don't even remember at the time, and I don't even know whether I have the letter, but anyway, um, he always insisted that we would be well read and that we would ask questions um, and discuss our lessons daily so that they would become a part of us other than just having them and then come home. And this, was this at your dinner table? Yes, at the dinner table or just any time in the evening. Mm -hmm. And uh, since we were a foursome, my mother and my father, my sister, and I, uh, we would have games that everybody could participate in, and he believed in helping. I guess he was a very modern father because we don't remember any discrimination in uh, work that was women's work. Uh, and so he would help with the laundry. We didn't have many electrical appliances at that time in our home. But he, if my mother had to go out of town, he would take care of us and he would cook the meals for us and so forth, then we were just as happy having him take care of us if she had to go and visit her parents or relatives or something like that. What did and you call him? Father, dad? Dad. dad daddy. Daddy. Uh -huh, yes. And uh, he would take us sometimes to his office. At, uh, one major center for uh, the intelligentsia at that time was the People's Finance Building located at Market and Jefferson. It had been um, erected by a composite of people, but Mr. F. Frank, uh, Mr. Will Williams, who was one of the early principals of the Sumner High School, which was the only black high school here in the 20s, well, when there was segregation and until the early 30s, I think Bashan was established in around 27 or 28, uh, Mr. Williams and some associates decided that they would pool their resources or I don't know how the business deal came about, but most of the prominent uh, professionals, lawyers, dentists, physicians, and uh, some of the insurance firms of the uh, early 20s that did business with blacks were lodged in that area. Uh, my parents were connected with the uh, 
fraternal organization, and I've forgotten what it was. Well, maybe it'll come uh, and, um, and he was a sort of agent to help them with their business and also with uh, expanding the membership. The American Woodman Organization and the National I don't know whether the National Headquarters at that time had been located, but later it was located and still is located in the Denver, Colorado area. So I don't know Woodman? whether they had the American Woodman. Woodman. Uh, it's a, a fraternal organization, but they also processed insurances because for a long time uh, white insurance companies didn't insure blacks because they thought they were too much of a health risk because they did not have proper medical yes medical treatment and so forth and so that I think that was one of the first policies my parents took in out on my sister and me uh, when we were growing up uh, then of course my mother was reared in a family that believed in a great deal of refinement and culture. Her father was a minister, a Baptist minister, but they were also musically inclined and everybody developed some kind of musical interest. Mm -hmm. So my mother felt that part of our, and father too, felt that part of our enrichment in life was not only what we would learn in school, but in the ways we expanded our horizons through refined uh, training. So instead of having dancing classes, we had piano lessons and uh, we participated in the church and the church was a very, a center of um, development for youth because we had dramatic clubs and we had a junior church in our First Baptist Church so that the children participated in the children's church and assumed uh, leadership roles in the choir and the secretaries. And, um, and we were given speaking parts. Dr. Herman Dreer was an assistant pastor of our church and uh, the uh, Missouri Historical Society, of course, had uh, a co coverage on him and his family in the, uh, during the 20s. He was not only a minister, but he was also um, educator, and I think he had been recruited to come here to teach in the high school. But when I was in high school, I think he was uh, an administrator, a vice principal or assistant principal of the Sumner High School. But in that time, the um, syllabus and the curriculum didn't in, uh, include uh, black, black history. history, and so he organized some black history classes in the church and later that they were held at Portal College and so forth like that on Saturdays. And so my sister and I studied music and we participated in these black history classes and then every so often Dr. Dreer was so well creative we would have plays and my mother was the assistant superintendent of the Sunday school, that is of the elementary division because she had gone to a teacher's uh, training institution in Kansas where she grew up before her people migrated to Oklahoma. And uh, so um, as a result, um, she of course believed in dramatics and music and recitations and all of this. So she enriched the biblical 
instruction of the elementary school uh, division of the Sunday school with all of these um, spirit developmental outlets for the personality of the young people. So we had many avenues of um, creative talent. Then um, the First Baptist Church always seemed to be in the vanguard of whatever was sound in religious education. So it was one of the first uh, black churches that had uh, what they called then a daily vacation Bible school in the summer. And uh, because my mother was, uh, I guess, such a successful uh, elementary division superintendent, the pastor, Reverend Maxwell, asked her to be the superintendent of the uh, vacation church Bible school. They called it then the DV, something, daily vacation Bible school of the First Baptist Church. So again, there was a great deal of creative um, opportunity for learning the Bible, studying the Bible, then having dramatic skits on the Bible, and then uh, making field trips and relating it to other community activities. Alan, um, so I learned to play the piano. And I you still play? Yes, I do. Enjoy. I, yes, indeed. And I sang in the youth choir, and then later during my college years, I was the uh, director of the youth choir it at sounds, the church. It sounds as though you had a very full, oh yes, very full and happy life. Yes, it was very happy because even my parents taught. My father was a great checker enthusiast, and I sometimes meet some of the older, uh, though many of them have died off, uh, who knew him. And uh, so they were his cronies because one of our, my high school teachers in history, Mr. Beatty, I remember he and my father, I, my father would talk about him, they would be, they would go to the stay at the office and play checkers and so <laughs> forth. But we had a foursome in, in cards. And my father and my mother uh, taught my sister and me how to play whist. And so we always had wonderful activities there. And we really didn't have to go outside. And yet, when uh, the one of the first fine buildings, not the first fine building, that was really erected for black children was the Cole School that was named for Reverend R.H. Cole, who had been a pastor of our church. And it was located on Enright because uh, although we lived on West Bell, when my parents Was that in the Ville? No, no, that was in the, um, it wasn't in the Ville, that was in the Sarah Enright mm -hmm. um, West Bell District, which was one of the areas where many of the um, professional people began to purchase homes mm -hmm. in the uh, late 20s and early 30s and many of the doctors lived on that street doctor. All right, you had a full and you had a happy life and you had a very busy life. Yes. Um, and it seems as that it was all in a, a type of cocoon and very secure. Yes, uh, we, although we were black, we weren't, we didn't feel deprived because I guess my parents' horizons were always broadening us. We grew up going to the municipal opera in the summertime and uh, going to uh, the theater, even though it was up in the, at, at that time, things were segregated in the American theater and blacks could only attend 
by going up to what they call the peanut gallery and so on. Well, we went especially if some of the productions our parents felt were positive and wholesome. But then that brings in also the era when we began the protest, and that was uh, with Mr. Wheeler. All right, I want to I want to ascertain two things. One thing right now, uh, what what years? What where are we in in years? Well, uh, we in that? elementary school, I uh, where was where did you go? To I graduated from the Cole Elementary from School. From Cole, okay. And so then, although we then uh, went we started in those portables when the Cole School was completed, uh, we from the West Bell portables in that same 3900 block mm -hmm. on West Bell, the Cole School was uh, the, the Board of Education acquired property on Enright just a little to the east of where our residence was located. It was a double block, the 39 block on Enright and the 40 block on Enright were a double block. And so then uh, we were transferred to the uh, Cole School, named for one of the former pastors of our church. Tell me, Ellen, what was it like to be in a portable school? Well, I, just as I said, um, we had fine lessons as long as we could see, but in the dark days, we weren't able to see, but they they tried to, they wanted to hold us in school site. Yes, they had an oral discussion or the teachers would tell stories, but my father insisted that our uh, learning was limited because we did not have access to electricity. So after he wrote that letter, did they installed. Did you have a We had fine there? teachers. Oh, well, small play areas. There, there really wasn't an equipped playground. What did it? When did you, you said that you were able to go certain places, but um, what year first? I, I still want to know where we are in years. Well, it's in when the, did you graduate from Sumner? I graduated from Sumner in 36. 36, okay. Yeah. All right. June 36. Uh, when did you and how did you uh, assimilate to know that? How, how did. I want to know how you felt about and who explained to you what your position was and why you had to sit in the peanut gallery and why you couldn't go certain places. And was it something you just... Well, I think it came up through discussion more than anything else uh, with uh, people, you know, who were concerned about affecting change and that was in my mother's generation and my father's generation. Uh, you know, adults, uh, they didn't give too much discussion to that uh, for us as uh, children because um, you never we, we, it just were out. We were always busy and we always had places to go and activities to do and much, of course, uh, occurred in the homes of people when it wasn't centered in the school or the church mm -hmm. or in the YWCA, mm -hmm. which was a block from our church up on Garrison, mm -hmm. uh, the Phyllis Wheatley. Mm -hmm. As I said, we had so many outstanding <coughs> intellectuals and uh, cultural people who would come to our church and lecture that the, the church was a center of, a, of cultural enrichment and um, development. And then, of course, the Pearl College. Who else came? Oh, all the prominent people. Well, first of all, we had very literate ministers. Um, so Reverend Cole 
was also a principal of one of the elementary schools, and that's how they, he was an educator. In the early 20s, uh, most of the Eastern, um, most of the blacks who matriculated at colleges in the East weren't necessarily recruited for employment there, but they were recruited to move south and west. And so uh, many of them graduated from Wilberforce or, or Oberlin or graduated from, uh, let's see, what was the name of the, all of the colleges in the East. Mm -hmm. um, they mm -hmm. perhaps came here because they were just such outstanding, brilliant people. What was the message that they were giving? They would say to learn all you can and be the best that you can uh, be and always set your goals and sights high for uh, advancement. Was it in spite of what was going on or did they urge yes. us to change the, things? The, well, at that time they were urging us to get the finest education we could develop because one can sometimes be hampered by limited intellectual development. And so through the intellectual development and the cultural development, one could expand or extend her or his horizons. And uh, so that was part of it. And although uh, the black history wasn't in the curriculum, I recall distinctly that uh, some of our teachers in the high schools always encouraged special reports, oral reports to extend whatever our course was. And so in sociology, one of the professors there insisted that we bring in some reports on um, successful black personalities that we could find or read about in could you uh, bring literature in? and so forth. Uh, i tell you the truth, I don't, uh, let's see, I'm trying to remember what, uh, this was in sociology and I'm trying to remember what my report was about. <laughs> I always had so many reports on <laughs> <laughs> You wish to. You, you uh, then as a child, uh, from what you're saying, you did not feel segregated. I didn't feel it, uh, the segregation because I was always busy mm -hmm. and I always had places Yet. to go and activities to do. Yeah. But in my uh, teens, I began, that was in my early childhood. But in my uh, teens, of course, I began to learn about that. I graduated by, from elementary by school when I was 11. You learned by listening, uh, listening to your parent to or parents by, by participating in these supplementary enrichment But when was, when was the first time you personally uh, oh, I, I, had, a, had a problem with it? I guess it was when the Fox Theater was erected. Tell me about that. Well. It was such a beautiful uh, theater and it attracted so much attention. It was in the paper and there was discussion about it and uh, we could read about it and so forth. And uh, I think at that particular time, um, it was sort of discussed that the only people who could go were people who could pass, who were fair and could go as though they were white. Well, my mother was very fair and my father was uh, of medium brown skin and then but they had other friends who were fair. And so I remember that one time one of my mother's friends uh, said, 
And when you come from school, I want you to wash your face and clean up very well and get dressed and so forth, and I'm gonna take you someplace. And she she was very fair because she looked just like uh, any other white lady. My mother did too and so forth, but my mother wouldn't go. But uh, she let little her friend take me. And so it was a cool day or something like in late fall and so forth. She said, put on your cap, you know, your tam, that's what they call those little uh, casual hats. Tam and put your scarf on and she put powdered up my face and so forth. And she took me to the box and that was the first time I realized what it was to be discriminated against because before then I guess I had only gone to public activities that were open to everybody else like the Coliseum would have big uh, circuses and so on like that. Well, I don't think they discriminated when they had circuses that would tour and they had big events like that on holidays and so forth because that was on uh, Jefferson near Franklin. How did you feel about being powdered up and being there? Well, it was just like a, an, an experience of going to another town or a, another trip or something. I didn't realize the stigma of it until later, you know. But we didn't have any difficulties, so we just sat there and looked at the film. I think it was something that uh, involved some blacks and whites in the film. I was in college at uh, Stowe, was segregated, but um, this was going to um, my father had passed then because all along before then I had anticipated graduating from high school and attending Kansas University, but um, he died in the peak of the Depression years and we didn't have many resources. So my sister had graduated from Stowe Teachers College, so my mother urged me to go there, although I had received a couple of scholarships to college up in Iowa scholarship for another school. I don't know whether I received any from any black colleges or not. My father had graduated from this, but we didn't pursue my either of us going there because we, my mother didn't have that much resource, financial resources mm -hmm. available at that time. But uh, she said, well, why not to attend the stove Teachers College, and then when you graduate from there, you can do some graduate study mm -hmm. elsewhere. And so that's the way we got over the hump of by not going to school because then the there was only Lincoln University, and blacks were not admitted to um, any of the other universities like Washington University and St. Louis right. University. But that was also the time when uh, Mr. Uh, Henry Winfield Wheeler, who was one of the presidents of the NAACP, began to uh, the move for dignity to get break down the barriers of discrimination in the American theater. And so um, he would call me because my mother had had me to go to the NAACP meetings with her. She was active in the adult NAACP and I went with her to the meetings and so forth. Um, my parents were always eager to have my sister and me go wherever they were going, and so we were always 
operating in two uh, groups, uh, peer groups. The adult peer group that my parents were in, and then the regular peer group for my sister and uh, me. Uh, so anyway... You had very special parents. Yes, yes, very special parents. I loved them dearly, and I remember all the lessons that they had uh, instilled in us. And this is an aside, I remember when my father was living, I was asking him to uh, give me some money so I could go to the hairdresser and get my hair styled and so forth. He said, who told you you weren't beautiful? To me, you're the most beautiful person in the world. And oh, I, I just never felt any, any inferiority from anyone because my father had told me that to him, I was the most beautiful person in the world. And so I could stand indignities from anybody else because my father was looking at the mind and the spirit and the body and the truth of learning and uh, relying on yourself and creating new outlets and for yourself and for others and working harmoniously with people. And so that, that's, that's what I... Uh, but she fell back on. Yes, that's right. So even when people tried to ridicule me or when people even sometimes gave crushing criticism of me personally, it just tossed off because if I didn't consider that that fitted my image of myself, it didn't matter to me what people said. I had objectives and goals and so forth. And uh, there were some wonderful values that we grew up with. For instance, I enjoyed games and at the Cole School in the summertime they had a playground and uh, they played checkers and mill and baseball and volleyball and I got in every game and so forth. So at the end of the summer year the, they would always have a, an um, sort of inter-playground contest and so forth. And I was the best mill player, which was a checker game, offshoot from regular checkers. So they had asked me to be a junior mill uh, champion to represent the Cole Playground. But my family had an extended family with some cousins who had uh, young men who were older than my sister and me, but we would get together for family uh, gatherings on holidays. And so somehow I had promised to go to play in the checker tournament to represent Cole School, but I didn't show up. And uh, the school called because I had won all of the activities at the Cole playground and they wanted me to represent the other. And so the playground instructor called up and my uh, I guess my father answered the phone for some reason off that day. But it was this, it must have been something like a holiday or end of the week because we were supposed to go on this family picnic. Uh, my father was not too much of a sports enthusiast, but he enjoyed going fishing and he had some cronies with whom he would go fishing. This sounds funny, pre-correlate, because I think it's not as clear as it used to be, but they used no to go to clear. No lake or a lake, and they would bring the best fish, and then we'd have a fish fry in somebody's backyard, and 
the families would get together. So anyway, I can see the I can see the enjoyment he, on your face. He, knew, he didn't know. Well, I was going to that family gathering because that was wonderful, and I didn't know that it conflicted with. He has to wind. Okay, you didn't tell him you were a tournament player. Yes, but this playground director knew that I was capable mm -hmm. of winning, and they wanted their best player. So they called to find out when I was going to come down to participate in the, uh, the citywide tournament. And they explained that I had won the uh, rounds there. And so my mother said, Evelyn, where are you supposed to be today? I said, I'm going with all of us and the family to the picnic. He said, oh, Evelyn, I'm so sorry. We had a call that you are a winner in the tournament at the local level, and you're to play in the citywide uh, mill tournament. Evelyn, don't you understand that poor people do not have very much, but their word is their bond. And if you have committed yourself to play in that tournament, you must play. And you'll, we'll excuse you from the family because you promised as a person that you would participate. And you have earned that honor, so you have to follow through. Oh, you can imagine how sad I was to miss the family party. You know, it was a fish fry picnic. And here I was missing that to go play in the tournament, but I went on because he insisted that. And I, I've always learned that lesson, and it's lived with me throughout, that I'm a free agent. I do not have to make a commitment, but once I've made a commitment, I will stand by it if it's an honorable commitment, unless there are conditions that would prove uh, something that would be a compromise with one's integrity. So, uh, so that's... That's the way I am now. <laughs> <laughs> You've talked a lot about your father. Talk a little bit about your mother. Yes, well this is what I wanted to say, that she insisted that we develop our uh, musical mm -hmm. talent. Mm -hmm. And so I was the pianist in the Sunday school and in the uh, BTU, uh, which was the Baptist Youth, they called it in the BYPU, the Baptist Youth. Uh, People's, young people, Baptist Young People's uh, Organization, you know, which what, was the evening what meeting. Were the, what were the, she, she was outstanding in her own way. Yes, yeah, she had she been was, trained as an educator in a teacher's uh, college, not a teacher's college, but let me see, I think they called it uh, a seminary or something in Kansas mm -hmm. for two years mm -hmm. at that time in the, uh, and so uh, she had taught for a short time in Oklahoma, but uh -huh. when she came here, she did not pursue that. Uh, we were young, and so she stayed home and took care of the family. And then she developed in the church many different youth activities. So my sister and uh, I participated in those in the daily vacation Bible school, in the Sunday school, and in the Young People's Fellowship. But didn't she, besides being involved in the NAACP, wasn't she also involved in the Urban League? Yes. Well, that was after my father had passed, and in mm -hmm. her mature years after, uh, after she had to, she never did work while he lived. 
she was not employed in St. Louis until after he had passed. Except you said when she went out well, of town, was that just a visit? To family? visit family, friends, and, okay. and so forth. Uh, but she um, uh, pursued work as a social worker here. And uh, so she... After he died? After he died. Okay. Yes. Um, and so she worked in Judge Griffin's, uh, she got a, a, a political appointment in Judge Griffin's court, which was paroling uh, men who somehow didn't provide for their families properly. And she was an assistant parole officer or something like that. And that was, uh, a, a, I think, a, a political appointment. Yeah, this is in the 40s. And this was earlier than the 40s. This was in the late 30s. Late 30s. Uh -huh. Okay. And she had that before she went to the uh, Urban League. Mm -hmm. Then she was uh, recruited by Mr. Clark, John T. John Clark, T. Clark, who was the executive director of the Urban League. And that's when she uh, became what you call a community development organizer. And uh, because they knew. Was this a paid work. job? Yes, this was a professional paid Okay. So, so that was her, more the, or less her. Her yeah, first professional paid job in the civil rights yes, uh -huh. movement. That um, parole was a uh, parole officer was a salaried position. Mm -hmm. And so this was when you were around sixteen to seventeen. Yes, so, that's right. Okay, let's. I'd like to ask a question. We talked about the color of skin. Um, you're fair. Uh, oh, I'm I'm like running my sister's pair than okay. I, and so she. T tell me what so she was. So she she looks closer to, oh, well, she was she and my mother were of the same complexion. Uh, politically, socially, uh, economically, what did a light, dark, uh, medium skin? What difference? was all that. How important was that to to whites? How important was that to Negroes? Well, um, I imagine when we were associating with our own people, it didn't seem to be too important to us, but it seemed as though sometimes persons who were fair and had some educational college training, it was easier for them to get a job because I remember she said that she was the first uh, black that they had ever hired in that uh, court as a pro professional social worker, you know, or a parole officer and so forth. And uh, that was, I guess, because she had been active for a time with the, the local, lower level of um, Democrats at that, at that time, which was in, I guess, the 30s. So Did it have to do, were people concerned with if you, if your daughter was light uh, and she married somebody that was dark, black, or was, was that a social problem? I don't know whether it was, uh, uh, it may have been, but if you're in that and you've never been uh, excluded from anything that you were real interested in, it didn't. It, we didn't, that didn't bother us too much mm -hmm. because we were, we always seemed to be able to be pleased with where we were and associated with 
uh, fine people, and I think it was because my father was a professional, mm -hmm. that we never did seem to be excluded that, from anything. It. And it, therefore, it didn't uh, appear as though we were being uh, Well, you're very fair, but I wondered if you, if you uh -huh. just generally knew that, that well, that was I the case for could, other people. I guess I guess it may have been the case for other people, but uh, my grandparents were I, grandparent. My maternal grandparents were very fair, so I suspect they had some um, Caucasian blood in their uh, background, background somewhere, because all of their uh, daughters were just as fair as my mother, and they had beautiful hair. My mother never did have to go to get her hair styled and uh, straightened to get the kinks out because she just had beautiful silver hair, just like your hair is silver. And sure I, is. You know, <laughs> but I mean it was of a fine quality and she didn't have, she just styled her own hair and she had great dignity and gray, pretty gray eyes and blue eyes. Tell me about your mother and Henry Wheeler and what they did. Well, and how see, my mother became interested in the uh, NAACP. Mm -hmm. uh, it's before we talk about that, we have to understand. I named two institutions: the YM, the YWCA, the and Wheatley. the church, the Wheatley Branch. But the Center for Black Progressivism was uh, the. Uh, YMCA, the Pine Street YMCA, that would have Sunday afternoon lectures. Mm -hmm. And in addition to our own church, where our minister would bring fine, prominent leaders across from the nation, black leaders, to lecture or to speak or to uh, preach in our church, then we would go to the Sunday afternoon forums at the uh, Pine Street Y on uh, Lawton and See, I think it was 2800 Lawton Avenue. Yeah, we're still in the 30s. Yes, and uh, so there we would meet some and hear some of the prominent people mm -hmm. of the community that we hadn't met before. And uh, we would hear them and be inspired with their lectures of progress. So NAACP leaders would come and speak and uh, other uh, prominent ministers from outside and attorneys and lawyers like that. And as a result, my mother uh, got to know some of them and uh, became interested in the NAACP and then I would go with her to the NAACP meeting. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, what, was, what, were, what were some of the goals? Oh, she was on the NAACP executive uh, committee. Mm -hmm. um, and attorney Sidney R. Redman mm -hmm. was the president of the NAACP. And uh, I think this was one that um, sort of stimulated her to affiliate with the NAACP. And she worked with um, him. So she was elected to the executive committee. And uh, when you're in the executive committee, where you're very involved because you not only attend the open meetings, but you're in some of the uh, organizing and 
issue-oriented thrust for the direction that the branch will take on at issues concerning race relations. So what, what would you say that the issues were for the 40s? Well, for the late 30s and the 40s, one of them was breaking down that barrier at the American theater so that blacks, if they had the money to sit in a box seat or in the orchestra seat, then they would be able to go because they wanted to purchase those higher price tickets, but they were relegated to the, you know, what they call the peanuts, mm -hmm. peanut gallery. And so um, then they had what you call the sit-ins to allow blacks to be um, active and be able to be served on a non-discriminatory basis in any of the public access restaurants like the uh, food grills in the Tencent stores and the downtown areas. Were you part of the city? And so forth. Um, my mother was in that movement. Now she never did participate in the sit-ins, but I uh, served on the demonstration line for the American theater. But her contemporaries were, uh, I was thinking about some of them, Ms. Maddox and so forth. Uh, she and Mrs. Maddox were in the same uh, group in the NAACP, and they uh, were active together. You weren't in the sit-ins, but you were, what did you just I, say? I was in the uh, demonstration lines what for the it? American What is the difference theater. between de demonstration Well, the sit-ins would be you'd go and take a seat in the restaurant, uh -huh. and you would sit there whether they served you or not. Okay. And, uh, so this was and okay. then the... Uh, the demonstration line before the theater was you would carry a sign to say that uh, there should be no barriers due to race and so forth. And Mr. Wheeler, see what some people don't understand is that the NAACP is a conglomerate organization and it operates on many different wavelengths uh, attacking the racism in the United States to uh, achieve full democracy for all of the citizens. And so their one direction is through the courts, another is through direct action, another is through voter participa participation and getting out a strong vote to turn the rascals out and the rascals can be anybody who will not commit himself to a full and open society, a free society where blacks can achieve whatever they're able to achieve. It doesn't say break down the barriers or reduce uh, the requirements, but that by equal measuring up, then they're able to have the opportunities for employment or social uh, access or for what you call a human community right, and that is the right to where anybody is served. If you have the money to buy it, you ought to be able to be served. What, did, so, they, train, did they train you to uh, stand in the demonstration line? Well, Mr. Wheeler organized that, Mr. Henry Winfield Wheeler, and so then we would march. Now, we could march on Saturday because they had a matinee and they had an evening show, but the other times we were in school, and so uh, most of the time that demonstration was on Saturday. But what did he tell you about? We just carried signs. He says, you don't talk with anybody. That's what I'm you talking. just walk in the line and let them read the signs. Mm -hmm. and, and then you do not interfere with the uh, 
uh, of the people who want to go and purchase tickets for the show, but you hope that if there are any blacks that want to go and purchase it, they won't purchase the tickets now to sit up in the gallery. So after a while, there was the boycott that blacks wouldn't go up in the gallery, and finally, we won that. Did he tell you what to do if somebody said something to you? No, he didn't tell us. We, we were all in college, and he felt that we were intelligent enough to know that we were not trying to create any hostility or any uh, altercations or confrontations. We were to walk, and he told us what the rules were, just as uh, people in the labor unions have rules when they're walking a picket line. They, there's a territory, and they must not interfere with the business and so forth. So he gave us the the, the guidelines for which you operate uh, picket line with dignity. And, and we we had handouts, you know, leaflets if they wanted to receive them. And how did people react to you all? Well, some walked away and then others went in, but no blacks crossed our picket line. Did, they take, in did they take the information from you? Yes, they accepted the leaflets that we handed out and they read all of our signs. And sometimes they knew us because we were we were members of different churches. That is the blacks. No, I'm talking about the whites. The whites. Oh, they didn't know us or anything, but something they accepted the leaflets and so forth, and some of them turned away. And it soon it did win because we we chart, we eliminated the picket line and they had negotiations, and then the people had access to to the theater would you at say all levels. Would you say generally that the whites were? Uh, some of them probably weren't were oblivious to the fact that there was any segregation. Some of them may have been. Were there any overt acts that that were unkind or unpleasant that you? I don't recall. I don't recall any at the theater. Mm -hmm. There may have been, but I don't recall any when when we were there on Saturday because we would we would dress up neatly. You know, we weren't trying to be conspicuous or anything other than our our posters that we wore over our shoulders so they could see that we had dignity ourselves. I hope they would. Tell me about Mr. Wheeler. Oh, he was a remarkable man. Uh, Mr. Wheeler had fought injustice, first of all, because he was a federal employee in the post office. And at that time, um, the post office, you had to pass an examination, as you do now, to get in. But uh, then, it, uh, some of the men there perhaps were educated and trained so that they could actually uh, be in other fields, but other fields were closed and so the federal government w was an area where they could uh, exercise their literacy to a high level and not be completely discriminated against and have a good earning income for their families and so forth. So he was in the post office, but as I recall, he, they, they weren't ever promoted to some of the higher le levels of uh, categories of employment in the post office, like assistant postmaster or supervisor or investigator. There are many categories of uh, United States post office employment. But as long as they had passed that test, they could be uh, a mail carrier or they could, a few of them, I don't even know that at first many of them were even clerks who could 
manage the sales of postage stamps and so forth at the windows, even in the the postal offshoots in the na black neighborhoods, they were usually uh, managed by whites, and some of the salespersons were uh, white, but blacks could go in and out of there as the mail carriers, or they could handle the big dredge and the sardine of mail behind the scenes. The big what? The dredge, big bags, uh -huh. sorting the mail and getting it ready to be uh, sent in the trucks down to the the state, the main post office mm -hmm. for out for all mail. You know, all mail in the city, no matter where it comes from, has to go down to the main office. So they have big trucks and back up to these um, district post office, say, transport it down. So they had restricted categories of employment, and I think it was Mr. Wheeler <coughs> who felt that. There should not be the restriction, but wherever they had examinations, blacks should be allowed to take the examination. If they pass the examination, would qualify also, all they right, and they should be advanced. Yes, and I think that was one of that was another challenge that Mr. Wheeler had um, in terms of discrimination in employment. See, the American theater was discrimination in public access by being just a citizen if you have the money to purchase the ticket. But this in the post office was discrimination in shunting the blacks, restricting them to the lower levels of employment. And that's the reason I said that the NAACP has many avenues and many directions for challenging the uh, racism in the American society. And uh, I don't know whether he was involved in a court suit or filed a suit. I, I think he probably did for uh, promotion to a higher level job because he was an intelligent man and realized that he had the capabilities to do what the others were doing. In the 40s, uh, <coughs> talk about some of the outstanding men or, and women who made a difference, 40s or 50s, mm -hmm. the 50s now, uh, we don't have to just, but um, yes. we, can, we can start with the 40s since take it like that. All right, um, well now, uh, the, whether it was church, in any, in any way, just that made a difference in progress, a tried. Um, well, this group of women who did participate in the sit-ins, Miss Maddox and mm -hmm. some of the others, I forgot uh, some of them. Mr. Wheeler had a daughter, Miss Ruth Maddie Wheeler. She's unfortunately deceased now. Uh, so she was active mm -hmm. uh, in the movement. And uh, I found whether she was a social, I mean, she was a social She participated in some of um, this protest work, mm -hmm. and um, Ms. Maddox, I forgot whether she, oh, she, I think she was the wife of a deceased physician, 
So I I never was impressed that she was seeking employment. I don't think she had any. They had any children, and uh, so she was vocal through the uh, NAACP mm -hmm. in affecting change and. I think she spearheaded some of that um, lunch acti uh, activity. Mm -hmm. um, you have to note too that there was a positive interrelationship between the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, <coughs> the, the black organization of purse porters who are under A. Philip Randolph had purse, a unit. Purse porters? The Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. Right. That was the name that of I it. Understand. I, I know and that, that was one. A. Philip but Randolph's. You said, you said something group. else. Well, they were active here locally under McNeil, T. D. McNeil. Ted McNeil. Yes. But you said something about purse, I thought. I, I don't know what you said. Let me go back. Right, we just ascertained that purse was a slip of the tongue and means nothing. Yes. Okay. All right, now, uh, you said there was a connection? Well, when various groups, members of different groups, experienced any kind of um, discrimination that they felt was flagrant or unjustified in terms of race, uh, the group or an individual might petition the NAACP for some assistance in strategy and so forth, or some people like the Brotherhood, they would have an inter-alliance with the National Association and uh, they would uh, relate to an issue that they felt was important. If it could be prosecuted and pursued through the courts, then it might become an NAACP legal attack on the racism in that particular category of employment and so forth. Or it might have been striking down some of the laws on the Missouri statutes in Jefferson City. Uh, and as a result, um, there were distinct areas in which these different groups would operate, but at some times there would be an intermeshing of their uh, objectives for the good of the total uh, black society, uh, populace here. And so T.D. McNeil was a member of the executive committee, and I think he was on the executive committee when my mother was on there of the NAACP. And uh, then, let's see, uh, of course, Attorney Redmond was um, a lawyer, mm -hmm. and uh, so he, of course, had some of the legal direction. And uh, A.N. Vaughn, who was an attorney, there were two Vaughn brothers. One was a doctor, and one, and one was a lawyer. George. Yes, George was the lawyer. And so they were active in the um, early 40s, from the late 30s and on into the 40s. Um, 
though, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think of some of the, the women. There weren't too many women, law, black women lawyers in St. Louis, but one that I distinctly remember who came here early in her adult uh, life, she was married, was uh, Mrs. Frankie Freeman, attorney Frankie Freeman. Mm -hmm. And so she was active in the um, NAACP. And that's how I think she became uh, involved in the lawsuit that the NAACP had with the housing authority. Mm -hmm. You know, usually uh, two or three of the lawyers have to work on an intricate case like that because it's so time consuming and it has so many uh, uh, ca uh, categories and uh, perspectives that have to be researched and so forth. Are you talking about a particular case? Or yes, which yes. One? Oh, this is the one with the Vaughn, Shelley uh, versus Kramer, yes. And George Vaughn and Frankie Freeman, I first met her when uh, she was active in the NACP, and she still is, mm -hmm. uh, but um, she was outstanding and worked on that uh, associated with um, George Vaughn. Um, and didn't she do the swimming pool, uh, the fairgrounds? Probably so, mm -hmm. I forgot to. What, 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 what touched you? Oh, mine was because I, I first went to the meetings with my mother and so forth and okay. then and, then and after, after that Mr. Mm -hmm. Wheeler would uh, was he was the president in one of those mm -hmm. years mm -hmm. uh, several of those years they elected mm -hmm. for two years and became the president and so when I got involved in that uh, in the uh, the uh, demonstration before the American from then on I was active and then um, was it exciting for you? Oh yes, because you, you could see uh, that you were able to affect change. Mm -hmm. it, it had a positive result. Now some uh, demonstrations may not have been as peaceful as that, but I don't mean in the American in other times and in other instances, but this didn't seem to be very harmful and so forth. And so at any time when Mr. Wheeler couldn't get anybody to go picket, he'd call me and he'd say, Evelyn, um, I need some pickets down here. And he knew I had a good cadre of friends who were teaching over there, uh, or were uh, in, uh, in the college over there at Stowe Teachers College and so forth. And then, uh, so we, I called them and I could always get a few of them to come to our young teachers who were just starting out in career. When you're young, you don't feel as though you're threatened and have anything to lose and everything to gain, and so you're very happy to participate he in constructive like, causes. He sounds he was, like the uh, Pied Piper. Yes, that's right, he was. He really was, and we really highly respected him. And so when he uh, campaigned for the state legislature, you know, he was elected one of the I guess one of the early blacks from St. Louis who was elected to the state legislature. May not have been the first, but he was one of them. Did he belong to your church? No, he didn't. I don't remember whether he was a Methodist or what. 
tell me about the NAAs. And then Reverend Cook, Jim Cook was a, a dynamic person in the community. <coughs> First of all, he was, you have to, I started out, this has continuity, though you don't realize it. Oh, I, I started out by saying <laughs> that the YMCA and the YWCA were centers for growth and development and so on. Well, Mr. Cook at first, before he became an ordained minister, was the assistant of the board.